Hello, I'm Paige, and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Euro Intelligence in Oxford. Uh, so, did you want to start with Italy or vaccines this week? What do you think? Um, well, Italy, I mean, it's a big mess and it's not getting as much attention right now. Yeah, it's getting a lot of attention from us, though. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, but but uh, Italy is is a very, very interesting situation. Yeah. Uh, it, Italian politics is is not that easy to understand from the outside. Uh, one always you know, thinks about coalitions and the, one can see the numbers, but one doesn't understand the dynamics, the complex dynamics that goes on between the leaders. And generally, people have very strong views of, uh, of individuals, for example, a lot of people have very negative views about Matteo Renzi, and they they project those views into their analysis and say um, <laughs> and, and come to very bad conclusions. Like you know this you know like four weeks ago when that Renzi will not dare because he doesn't have the polling numbers. Mm-hmm. In the end, he did dare. He went in all the confrontational issues, which started really on the recovery fund. You know, he he took the most extreme position. And even yesterday, he took this most extreme position of actually telling the president that he does not support Giuseppe Conti uh, to be given a, a, another mandate. Now, that wasn't clear until two days ago that he would, would actually say that. And we know now his strategy that even if Conti is given a mandate, which is possible, Renzi will tell him, fine, I'm happy to negotiate with you. But, you know, I want you to fire the finance minister. I want you to fire the justice minister. I want you to fire the economics minister. And, and uh, you know, if Conte cannot say yes to that, because his other coalition partners would not accept that. So Renzi knows exactly how to create a crisis. And the what he wants is, uh, uh, he says it's not personal. I don't believe that. It is personal, but but Renzi also wants to make his mark. Um, you know, he sees some of these reforms are threatening, you know, whether himself personally or people he knows, but the justice reforms are about statutes of limitations in criminal law. It makes it more likely that you are convicted if put on trial. And, you know, that is a very common occurrence in Italian politics, that politicians are put on trial for criminal uh, offenses. So, you know, there are personal interests going into these these decisions. This is not entirely political. For example, we reported on uh, this uh, senator from the opposition party from Forza Italia, who uh, briefly, (laughs) briefly, as it turned out, joined the government in exchange for a job. And then he went back. And I'm right. Absolutely. And the Italian media always refer to these people as the responsabili, as they can. And and that by that they mean the, you know, people who are who think they are responsible and in in supporting a government in a difficult year. That's a way to look at it. It's like being European is responsible. (laughs) And while, you know, we generally agree with that sentiment that, you know, we are pro-Europeans ourselves, but it's not something, you know, we think of generally being responsible when, you know, we do it for, you know, whatever other motives, but, you know, like getting a job or something. That that seems a bit, that seems a bit, bit strange. So the situation could go off in different ways. You know, it's possible that the president gives, who has a, he has a very powerful role at this moment. He could basically choose whom to um, whom to appoint. If he chooses not to appoint Conte, but somebody else, then, you know, there's nothing the Italian parliament can do without the president about this. What no? would be the, the possible yeah. alternative? It's not so much <laughs> the easy. I mean, Renzi, Renzi's been kind of playing a game. He's, he's you know, he's saying Luigi 
Di Maio could be a prime minister, but Luigi Di Maio knows this is a ruse. He knows exactly that Ren- all Renzi wants is to kill to kill the administration. So <laughs> Di Maio said no. Now he goes for another famous of leading five-star politician, Roberto Fico, who is the leader of the House, the Chamber of Deputies. Uh, but five-star, you know, five-star wants Conte, not their own people. Interesting. Conte is not a member of five-star, but five-star supports Conte because it fears that Conte might otherwise launch his own party because Conte has quite a lot of support opinion polls for if you believe them I, I i don't actually in italy but but some people do but the opinion polls would suggest that if conte had his own party it would be the largest party among the, the existing groups. So it would be larger than the PD. It would be larger than Five Star. You know, whether true or not, it certainly has instilled some fear into some people. Uh, and therefore, people are cautious uh, and they're certainly not eager to get rid of him. But that mm-hmm. might be an incumbent, prob- an incumbent thing, right? I mean, because he is prime minister at the moment, uh, therefore he attracts a certain amount of people in the polls backing him once he would be out of it and having to struggle through having an own party. It's no longer clear that he can actually manifest that dynamics of a party coming to power. I completely agree. And I think, you know, the, the risk is overstated. Uh, so if if they really chose another person, it could be that uh, this sort of threat will disappear. I mean, another thing that has been mentioned is a government with Mario Draghi initially as yeah. finance minister. And uh, this is the old Ciampi option, you know, um, Carlo Azelio Ciampi, who was, a you know, in various positions in the 1990s. He was a finance minister. He was a, he was a prime minister briefly uh, before he became president. And so he kind of, and he was a central bank governor at one point, mm-hmm. you know, like Draghi. So that is sort of the most comparable, uh, the biggest comparison. Uh, now, Italy of the 1990s and Italy today are two very different countries. Um, uh, but interestingly, in the discussions, people always revert back to something they had before, like technical governments and the chumpy option. So it's basically, you know, we'll be looking at, and we still have the same players. If you look at Italian newspapers, they're still Berlusconi, they're still Prodi, the same people <laughs> who were basically dominating the papers in the 1990s. I mean, it's it's astonishingly how, and some, you know, really old, you know, old people who've been, been around for a very long time are still kind of calling the shots. There isn't much of a new sort of thinking about new types of political structures that it's it's kind of that's why everything is stuck at the moment and it's stuck in the sense that it could go either way uh you know we quoted um, the italian columnist antonio polito from uh, Coyero della Sera, who had this hilarious comparison <laughs> of the situation with the mexican standoff and it actually you know i normally don't like these kind of you know metaphors and images but this actually is a good one because it's uh, sort of everybody pointing the gun at each other and you know if one person shoots, everyone will shoot and everyone will die. And it's a, it's a good description of the kind of the game theory. That's sort of the gaming that's going on in this, in this thing. There isn't an obvious solution. It's, it's not that simple. Um, you can't easily come up with an alternative. It's easy to say, oh, there should be a government of national unity until you know that the center-right doesn't want that either. And you cannot have a, a national unity government without the center-right. And the center-left has lost the majority. So that is not an option. So one of these positions need to shift at the moment the, the parties are not uh, willing to shift and that shift it could take some time to resolve but the interesting thing or the depressing thing is that the recovery <laughs> fund is no longer the issue uh, i mean when renzi started this thing in early december the recovery fund was the actual the cause of this because renzi criticized in our view quite rightly that conti had tried to kind of run the thing himself you know yeah. him, 
himself, a couple of ministers. I think the, the idea was to have a group of six directors based closely around the prime minister, a staff of 200 to run the thing basically without the control of parliament. And Renzi, I think rightly, picked this opportunity. I mean, you know, we know that this is not, it was probably just a pretext because, you know, we, one doesn't get the sense that Renzi really cares about this, but, you know, it was a useful pretext for him that allowed him to do what he's doing now. My next question actually was just, if this is a Mexican standoff, who is going to shoot first? Or do you think it's more likely that someone's just going to lower their weapon? I don't think anyone's going to lower the weapon because they will be <laughs> shot. Um, a, a more likely option is that Mattarella will have will take charge. Uh, I mean, you could think of the following sequence of events. What you could happen is that Mattarella asked Conti to do it. Now, we're recording this on a Friday. Now, if you hear this on the Saturday or Sunday, your events might have you know overtaken us here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, if Mattarella appoints Conte, which was on Friday still the, the presumption, uh, but not the only presumption. Some people said this, there are plausible alternatives. But if he points Conte, gives Conte a, a short period of time to actually solve the problem, like a week or two, and come back with a government. If if he fails, then uh, he will then appoint uh, another person uh, for a second time, possibly inside the coalition. If that person fails, he might then choose a, a government of national unity. So it, there might be a sequential things. I mean, the, the, it is always possible that the president says, look, you guys can't deal with the situation, so I have to deal with the situation. So I appoint a prime minister who I think is going to be going to run the situation, and I will ask you to support that prime minister. Now, presence in Italy carry a lot of moral suasion, and it would be kind of hard for, especially for the government parties, including for Renzi, to go overtly against the advice of a president. But Renzi would would probably accept that because he would at that point have achieved his goal to get rid of Conti (laughs) and possibly to get rid of some of the players that have supported Conti. So so he he would get what he wants. The other parties would still be in there. So Renzi's cards, provided he plays them well, are actually not that bad uh, because they need him for the majority. The ideas of recruiting opposition and uh, senators, it really hasn't, you know, he's still the 10, 10 seat short. I mean, he's got a couple, but it's it, he hasn't got the numbers that he needs. Uh, and he can't rely on life senators for the support of a legislative agenda. Now, they might support him. I mean, he had the, the confidence vote he had, and he didn't clear a majority hurdle. He only cleared a relative majority hurdle because Renzi abstained. He didn't vote against him. Had Renzi voted against Conte, he would have failed. So so, so Renzi didn't pull his, you know, didn't shoot. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't the point when people shot. No? That was that was <laughs> the, 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 that was not a murder scene. Uh, so, uh, so, so, so it, it's all in the balance there. But I mean, for us, I mean, the interesting thing, and we can talk endlessly about the the intrigues that happen in Italian politics. Yeah. But the broader the broader issue is is you know we having a, a crisis in Italy. It's also it's not only the, the recovery fund, but also a severe vaccination crisis. Uh, Italy had the vaccinations front-loaded with hospital staff, which is why the initial statistics looked so good for Italy, because it's easy to vaccinate hospitals, uh, people in hospitals, because that's where the vaccines are anyway. <laughs> and uh, but you, you will find it much harder to actually, you know, vac- vaccine people in villages and mountains, yeah. uh, where a lot of Italians live. 
Um, so, so the logistics initially, even if they had the stuff, which they don't, but even if they had the stuff, it'd be actually quite difficult to get, get it to everybody. Italy, like Germany, has lots of constitutional hurdles uh, about whether this should be central or regional legislation would have to be passed in order to make this possible. This is not some, simply a government action that could be unleashed like, like it was done here in the UK, where the government simply centrally organized the vaccination pro- program and uh, distributed the whole thing in 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 a fairly impressive speed that is not going to happen in Italy, even in, in the best of scenarios. So a legislative agenda is ahead. Um, Italy missed out on the tourism season last year. It missed out on the winter tourism season this year. And at the moment, it looks like Italy will miss out on the summer tourism season because of the slow vaccination uh, procedure. So we have a, a crisis without a doubt. And and this uh, and I think this is what really this is about. It's not about just who is up with whom and uh, and you know who's going to be the name, who's, who's going to be the prime minister. It's almost irrelevant who's going to be the prime minister because the economic the economic consequences of this virus crisis, but also of the recovery situation, and the it's going to be so so severe that um, that a government crisis of any sort is just a, a terrible thing. And the terrible thing is not the fact that Renzi triggered a crisis. The terrible thing is that the government has lost its majority and that they can't do the job. And it doesn't, you know, if there if there was another, they urgently need a majority. That's that's the issue so that they can get the job done. But in, it is interestingly and depressing that the priorities in Italy are still about who's who is with whom and who's, you know, they're still doing the same thing. It's it's interesting, you know, one of our learning experience here at your intelligence that we always assumed that crises would change things. Uh, that that, you know, <laughs> I mean our hope. I uh, hope, yeah. You know, we have this collective action problem in Europe. We knew that. That wasn't new. But we thought that if there's a real crisis, only bad enough, then things would change. And we have learned that it's not the case. You know, people could die on the streets and people would still, you know, write newspaper articles about, you know, whether Conti or Conti versus Renzi. It's the big thing. The EU would still, you know, not solve the problem as they, you know, it's but blame, you know, that's what they did to happen. You know, blame games yeah. and all that. So we're still basically in, you know, reverting to very old old sort of habitual responses in European politics. Uh, and, you know, the, res- the conclusion that I personally have drawn is that no crisis can ever be big enough to change that. I mean, these are narratives. These are just narratives. And you have to find that turning point when is the narrative changing. And we haven't seen that yet. And uh, it's not even clear that the crisis is upon that changes it. But uh, definitely, if you have established actors, as you refer to from, from Italy, but it's also true in Germany and France, we all sort of actor driven and we want to see our heroes uh, to succeed or fail depending on where you are but it's a, it's really national narratives that drive forward uh, what you're focusing on and leaving your <clears throat> your judgment with um, very serious blind spots and uh, not really looking at the the issues that they that they need to be solved yeah well if we can talk a little bit about blind spots actually and take this vaccine discussion to the EU level uh, Wolfgang as early as I went back and checked this, as early as December 21st, you were warning that this vaccine procurement problem was going to wind up being a major crisis for the EU. And we saw this week that that is indeed what has happened. A lot of people have been burning with rage on both sides of this debate, whether it was AstraZeneca, whether it was the EU. Could you provide a quick or perhaps longer comment on what is going on with the EU vaccine strategy right now and what the consequences of this week's events might be for the future of the European Union. 
Yeah, the AstraZeneca issue is a sideshow. Uh, I mean, for, for, for a reason, is by the time we are talking, this, this, this vaccine has not even been approved. And Germany is saying that it won't use them for older people who are the only yeah. people who really need it the most. So essentially, um, essentially, uh, you can't blame AstraZeneca for the, you know, for the slowness of the EU's response because these are causally unrelated issues. There are, we are talking about marginal numbers. You know, it, it, it may make a difference whether the EU gets another 10 or 20 million vaccines from AstraZeneca. But, you know, we saw last night that the UK, uh, that in the, in the UK, that another vaccine, it's actually an American vaccine that has been approved that's apparently very effective against the UK variant. And that could result in 60 million vaccines being developed, um, bought by the UK government uh, and deployed relatively soon. So, you know, there isn't going to be a vaccine shortage, uh, and, uh, you know, beyond it. But what happened is that the EU took a long time to negotiate. It took the, it did the usual thing. They did all these committees and all these they did what they did with Brexit. They did this on the vaccines. Yeah. And there wasn't a, an executive decision saying we need to do this now. Uh, it was the usual EU comitology through which this whole <laughs> thing went. The commission does what it always does. It tries to negotiate the price. They, they think of themselves as really good negotiators. And then they negotiated a really good price for some of these vaccines, but apparently not with AstraZeneca because AstraZeneca said they, they, they charged the same price because it was the minimum. It was yeah. what they considered or said was a non-profit, not, not for profit price. Um, um, and the EU, so it wasn't, I don't think it wasn't a, a price issue with AstraZeneca, but it, it took a long time to negotiate these things. It's not and, really the prices, isn't it? It's the conditions. Uh, yeah. Who is actually responsible for what? That was what uh, the EU was so proud of, of that they actually renegotiated better conditions. But when you look in the fine print, uh, it doesn't look like that these conditions are really uh, also in terms of who's delivering the order. I mean, delivering the order in terms of uh, as measured by quarter still means that you can be three months late with your delivery and still be contractually in, 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 in line with, with the contract. I mean, an, a whole population immunization program is a massive logistical task that is, you know, it's almost a, of a military grade uh, uh, level and you need, and, you know, it's not something that ordinary procedures are there. We don't have the procedures in locally. We don't have them in hospitals. We don't have them in, in pharmacies. Pharmacies are not equipped for that. So we have a, we have multiple bottlenecks in that, in that system. That's why uh, the vaccine from AstraZeneca was such a hope. I mean, France, for example, was counting on that one because it was much easier to store and actually be, it could be used uh, people could do the doses by themselves. Yeah, that's astonishing. I yeah. mean, self-administration would obviously speed things up and you, by the point yeah. when, you know, when you can just, you know, ship them and drop them through people's letterboxes. Exactly. Uh, that's a very different proposition than, 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 than having everyone line up in a vaccination center. So there are, you know, many logistical considerations that simply people did not pay attention to in the early, in the early days. And the usually EU method is not suited for that. And that's what is like astounding to me though, is like, how did the EU, which in my view, invented fine print. How did they not check the fine print in this situation? It's, yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, um, the EU has a, a record since basically starting with the Maastricht Treaty of taking on projects for which it is not equipped. The, the Montreal Union was a classic one. It was not clear. It was clear that the Montreal Union was not a sustainable structure in the way it was created. It needed to evolve. It needed to it, it needed to change. But it's a risk to, to start something. Now, doing it with a vaccination program where you basically have to get it right immediately, uh, that's where they 
where they got it wrong. They thought that they, they would do another emu, and uh, you know, and maybe in ten years somebody will will reform it. And uh, with the usual <laughs> optimism that that is sort of a you know precondition for for you know having a job, you know, getting a job in Brussels, uh, uh, that basically failed. And suddenly they realized, oh yeah, people's lives are, is at, are at stake, and the economy is at stake, and you know, serious stuff is happening. Yeah. And then what they're doing now is blaming some 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 manufacturers for the problem. Now they had at the at the vaccine side, they should have organized uh, the manufacturing. They should have made sure that there's not only capacity, but also excess capacity, like supply problems, you know, in a plant are very normal. Anyone who knows about manufacturing knows that it's a very normal thing that a plant has a problem, especially if if it has to step up deliveries. Uh, there may be bottlenecks in the in the supply chain. Um, there may be all sorts of things, especially when when you have to act very fast. So the EU would have should have basically invested in and plant manufacturing capacity. Yes, and it should have it should have um, uh, it should have ensured the the thing. It would have been a, uh, required a very significant. Um, uh, managerial process while they were still negotiating. So this was a, this was basically something that should never have been shifted. I, the motivation was pure and good. I mean, Merkel mm-hmm. made a point is that if we are in a vaccine race, uh, then uh, European integration would be at risk. But we are now in a vaccine risk. And we haven't solved the problem, uh, so the worst. So it's the worst of all scenarios that that happened. And what we do and keep doing, we keep shifting things onto the EU, for which the EU is not equipped. The EU is not. Uh, the, the EU does not have the structures for that. Now it's you know we should think about treaty change and making it and endowing it with the structure and put making the investments. Mm-hmm. But we are not doing it now. That is the that is the mistake we keep keep making and making. And the big lesson from the monetary union. And from Schengen and all these things is that that you need to actually you you can't continue to do this approach where you just start European integration with half baked measures and then hope for political shifts because you know they might not happen and we looked at we look at European politics at the moment and there isn't going to be a fiscal union there's no majority for that uh, there's there was a majority for a recovery fund but that was an emergency thing that maybe it may be repeated I'm not you know we we don't know what happens in the future but to pretend that this is a fiscal union is a joke. This thing is so far away from the fiscal union. It's, it's just you know, it's not. It's not that those who wanted the fiscal union and, and the one that is needed to sustain it, it's not going to happen. Therefore, you know, we're keeping making the same mistake again and again. Yeah. And you know, this is a mistake. Interestingly enough, this is the mistake that is catching public attention because it costs people's lives, and and people. And it's very easy to see. This is not like with the Montreal Union. They can they're complex economic arguments, and it's kind of a debate among us uh, and, and a group of people who tend to discuss this, this you know, <laughs> the kind of the forums on which one, one has those discussions and on Twitter and places like that. But, but you know, this is real. And, you know, it's for, for many people, it's a matter of life and death, but it's certainly a big issue for why the European economy is lagging so behind the United States in the, in the recovery. And that gap will widen significantly. Um, um, and, you know, by comparison, you, they, they will come, they will actually come to the conclusion that Trump's management of this thing was probably much better than the mm. EU's management of the thing. Oh. That's a depressing conclusion to come to. But it is, a, it is, it is, it is absolutely on that specific 
point. They got it right. Interestingly, Trump got it right, the British got it right, and the Israelis got it right. <laughs> they're all they're all they're all they're all run by political figures who are not or were run by politi- in the case of the United States, uh, run by political figures who um, who are not um, you know very much liked in Europe, no? and and that's uh, and that's that's uh, <laughs> so we have a, a big of a perception problem that the sort of nice cuddly EU with its liberal values <laughs> is ultimately you know not delivering the goods. Uh, it's a really bad message. Because if you, you don't want to say that Europe is just sort of something idealistic, but can't deliver goods, this is this is the politics of that. It's just, it's just horrendous. It plays into the hands of people like Brexit. I mean, in the UK where we live, uh, the, the, the tabloids are now screaming that you know now you see why Brexit <laughs> was a good idea because we don't have to part the mess now. And, and there are people so who, who are kind of remainers and who now say, yeah, I mean, at least you know there is an obvious benefit of Brexit. Um, and one has to say, yeah, it is because the UK, obviously, and the UK could probably have not participated in the EU's vaccination program. It might have vetoed it or whatever, but it or voted against it. But it's it's certainly is sold as a, a benefit of Brexit, and it may actually be portrayed as a benefit of Brexit uh, in other countries. This is a narrative-changing event uh, in a way that the Eurozone crisis wasn't quite. It changed our narrative, and it changed the narrative of some you know, insiders, some economists, some people have been, you know, like, you know, train spotters like us have been looking at that <laughs> thing since the 1980s. But uh, uh, but for it, in the public debate, the euro is still sort of, yeah, it's a currency, it's working, it's, it's you know, it's sort of, there's some problems. But the, 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 this has not been an overriding narrative as this one is. Yeah. And I will admit, um, don't, don't fire me, but when you were talking about maybe there were like benefits for Brexit, I was thinking not a chance. Like there's no, there's no way, there's no way this could benefit the economy. And I never considered that it might actually be, you know, benefits in the form of lives saved. And granted, you know, the UK has not done a great job of handling the crisis either, but in a few months time, who knows? Um, so that, that's, what's been really disappointing for the whole thing about me is just that it does strengthen these these arguments that I used to really disagree yeah, when with. I, when I said, I mean, when we made the argument, we discussed Brexit in the, in the early in the early stage. We didn't think there would be a benefit. What we merely said, or what I suggested, is that we, you know, economics brings surprises, and it's not always what you think it is. And I, I do recall in the early eighties, one of them, sort of when when I was very young, uh, and people said to about Thatcher's program, "This is going to end an economic disaster." Now there were certain factors that went the other way. They Britain found oil in the North Sea. There was sort of some, some external events that, that changed the narrative. And even though virtually all economists agreed that Thatcherism would end in disaster, it, it didn't. And um, I'm just careful about, cautious about consensus because the consensus view underestimates. It's not that they, they're all wrong in terms of their models, but they, they, they underestimate the power of events that could intrude in the future, like this one here. And it's uh, and maybe also te- technological changes, inventions, innovations. They have all the capacity to change, uh, like the digital revolution, you know. Has changed, or you know, GameStop might change. Might that change. Might change the, the dynamics of financial <laughs> markets. What is happening? I mean, that's that's the big story this week. And actually, um, my little brother is like all in on this short squeeze right now. He's become absolutely obsessed with it. I've never seen. So, is your little brother one of the criminals who is undermining the Western financial capital system? <laughs> yeah, <he's... laughs> he should be arrested immediately. <laughs> I'll tell him you said that. Hey, Grant. Um, Susanna, you wrote a very interesting piece about 
what this um, GameStop uh, short squeeze, kind of this this mass movement to take down hedge funds against all logic and rationality, how this fits into kind of a broader narrative. And so I wanted to talk to you about that and just hear your views on what, because now we're seeing that some of these trading platforms, ironically, um, one of which is called Robinhood, have halted trading and they're only allowing people to exit their positions. They're not allowing um, you know, they're small retail investors to actually buy shares in these companies that have been shorted. So you're seeing this pushback now from the great evil powers that be. And I wanted to just get your thoughts on the situation. What were you thinking when you first saw this story break? And how does it fit into these broader narratives about, you know, populist-driven change for good or bad? Yeah, I mean, our son was also very hyped about this. So we, he actually told <laughs> okay. me about this Robin Hood, um, that they are actually putting these things on hold. And I mean, the first time I got puzzled by it, uh, by this whole new movement, which emerges from these networks, which is actually only possible because we have these these platforms, internet platforms and forums that you can have a completely diverse number of different people organizing themselves and creating a wave. And so much so that they actually can challenge the institutional, the professional setup in a market. And we've seen this in politics. The Arab Spring was uh, one of the biggest uh, events that we've seen in the last decade. And uh, we've seen it, uh, how, how flash mobs of very fast and furious movements can create themselves and are unpredictable by by from the onset they're absolutely unpredictable um so you have to be in the debate and in the flow to understand what the dynamics is and uh yeah it's this we saw it in we saw it in 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 politics we saw it in economics i i remember when i first first came along this name of supreme my son came along and talked about it and explained how it works and it's like how can that be that you can sell a jumper that you buy for 150 quid and then you sell it for 800 pounds on the secondary yeah. market which is cheap i mean it's like i've never heard of some a concept like that before so i was quite intrigued um, to see that there are changes and it only is possible because those transporters, these are transporters and they create the trend. I mean, I asked my son yesterday, who's creating these trends? Who, is, who are the influential guys in these forums, yeah. isn't it? I mean, that's the thing that's sort of a, they have to tap into something and they have to know how to word it so that they tap into something that makes sense for all the others so that they follow. Whether or not it's rational, I don't know. I think we were talking about, is it really rational to hold on your uh, your shares? You might end up actually losing your money, but yeah. that might actually be a secondary issue. I mean, one of the questions I had is it could be used for political purposes, couldn't it? You could go and if you are on the anti-capitalist kind of movement, wouldn't it be actually interesting uh, to test it from the inside? I mean, we've seen yes. many movements in politics and in institutional, uh, in European politics where anti-European actually organize themselves inside the system, actually with the aim to destroy the system from inside. So this is a movement possible. Do we see that now in the financial markets? We don't know yet. My hunch is that those people who are trying to get their experiment, but to really have a strategy of doing that, you actually have to know what you're doing. And which implies you have to actually deal with something that you're actually against with. And not many people cross that 
that boundary and say and have a neutral kind of view and actually learn financial financial uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the finance the setup of finance to go that far so I don't know how far it will carry but it definitely is an interesting and um, surprised everyone I mean that you can have a 17 a 700% increase in your share like it happened in GameStop this is quite unprecedented and it just shows how big these um, uh, these movements come from discussion for uh, uh, with two million of uh, users groups. Yeah, well, for me, another thing that was so cool about this story, um, excluding the fact that a lot of hedge funds themselves actually made a ton of money from this whole movement. I mean, some of the people who came out the most on top in this were some of the largest hedge funds. Um, but just that it seemed to be something a populist movement that actually was kind of positive for once, like it wasn't racist or xenophobic or violent or aimed at putting far-right politicians in power or destroying democracy or storming the capital or anything like that. It just seemed like kind of a, a grassroots movement for, you know, the little guy to participate in capital markets activities that rightfully they should be able to and to make money and profit from it and learn more. Um, but we'll see how it plays out. I can I can see this becoming, you know, uh, I can see the powers that be cracking down on this a lot in the future. Yeah. And I mean, definitely it was helped by the fact that people are in lockdown, sitting at home, having nothing else to do. <laughs> so they can check the Reddit chat group and, and, and discussion groups 10 times a day without a problem. Uh, under no, normal circumstances where you actually have to go in and out of work and, and do all these other things that you normally do, that might be less so. So there's also a natural kind of lifespan to that. But who knows? I mean, it might actually take, take another twist and turn. One, one consideration one has to one has to also look at um, is um, now the shares have been 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 hyped. Uh, the many of the investors have been told by their own peers to sit on them and not to sell them. Uh, yeah. If they do this, there are threat. If there is a threat that they might lose the money that they, you know, I mean, not everyone went in at the low price and you know made fifty percent, five hundred percent gain. Some went at you know went in at the high end and made a small gain, but they stand to risk a big. These these you know, I mean, on on substantive grounds, the nothing has changed. Nothing in the business pros prospect of these companies has changed. Exactly. So that's the, what I've been saying. They, once the attention, the short term. Tension switches away from these companies. Their, their, their stops can drop like hot potatoes, and in the it is usually the small investors who don't get out quickly. And it's something about small small investors. They are not as agile. Uh, we also see this in, in 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 you know last year's brief stock market crash in the when the pandemic struck. Uh, yeah. the, all the professionals they were basically sitting in their terminals were selling, getting out of the stock market. The, the small guys did not get in there in time. And uh, it was probably the right decision not to get in there because the stock markets rebounded and had one of the most spectacular uh, recoveries um, in history. But it's, um, you know, if, if you know, the, the, you know, when you're starting at, at a stock price that is definitely in bubble territory, in massive bubble territory, uh, you might actually find that these you know, investors having, you know, scored some real successes now might, might actually become, you know, see themselves as victims. And uh, and then we don't know what what they will do. Um, and you know they they will actually have lost money. Their, their purchasing power will have actually have reduced. 
So I'm not entirely sure that this is a successful strategy, uh, but it's certainly a phenomenon. And I certainly agree with Susanna. There is an, an interesting there's a phenomenon that can, that can, uh, that changes, you know, certainly the way we think about economics, about price level and demand and how prices adjust to demand. All that is kind of not working in the same way in this, in, in this, under the system as it, as it did. But I see big, big issues at stake. Big, also big, big, big risks for investors at the moment. With the, if this trend continues, I mean, it depends on how how important money is for the investor. I mean, it's, if it's whether it's hurt or not, I still don't know. I mean, how much money they put in is it small amounts for everyone? In which case, you can actually forego the the, the, the loss. It's like you're gaming with your partners, and then and, and you are involved in a big game, and it's all about winning or losing. Yeah. And then you actually take the hit because it doesn't cost you so much. I think there is really yeah. a, a question of uh, of boundaries. Of course, if you are talking about a conservative investor, that's a different thing. They really want to have the profit, and they don't like losses. But I think here we have in a game. If you have a gaming mind, it is a very different. A proposition to you and really it then depends to find that balance what it is for you what you're seeking in 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 this in this race yeah um so we don't have much time left there are just a couple things um either the i don't know if you wanted to talk about the brief hubbub over the german constitutional debt break no, or that's the, that's not, no, talk no. about france or talk about turkey and greece coming back to the table or we could just end it now because i think, I think we can have... end it now i think this is do you want to okay. say something about you now you you are in subjects oh no i honestly can barely even remember what i wrote about this week this week wasn't a great week for me so like, you went on the vaccine kind of <laughs> yeah no i was yeah i was in a cloud of vaccine induced rage and <laughs> and of course uh, uni is back so Oh yeah, yeah, the classes, not too. But speaking of which, I should probably get on those readings. All right. Uh well thanks for joining us this week. Until next time.